0: Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message.
1: Whenever you start a new year, it always gives you an opportunity to lay down a marker for where you want to go throughout the coming year. What are the important things to you? We had a really, really superb summer series, and congratulations to all those who spoke. And in a couple of weeks, we're going to be studying some more themes that are dear to the heart of what Gateway is all about. But this evening, we want to talk about mission and talk about international mission in particular and what that means in in regards for us as individuals. 10% of our offerings goes to missions, whether it be here in New Zealand or overseas, and it's part of who we are. And as a faith community, we always need to keep one eye, as it were, on what is happening in our own area, in our own neighborhood, but also what God is doing across the world, that we are part of the body of Christ, and that we must never become too consumed, too taken up, too busy with the here and now and what's happening in our own backyard, to ignore what's going on around the world. We are part of this incredible thing called the body of Christ, those who have already been before us and those who will come after us. And being part of the body of Christ worldwide demands from us a response in some ways, and at least it means that we need to be informed of what's going on around the world. Secondly, I believe it means that we need to be able to pray intelligently and and informed. For some of us, it means that we will actually have to go, but for all of us, we need to be able to pray and we need to be able to give. The danger, as I said, is that we all get consumed with where we're at in the here and now. In order to, to do what we want to do tonight and do a little bit different, I am delighted to say that we have with us Davy and Esther Allen. Davy and Esther are missionaries from the United Kingdom who are living and working in Cambodia and have been for many years. And if you remember, we sent a team out last November to Cambodia. And it was to their, uh, set up to their church that we, we sent them. However, tonight we want to do something different. This is not going to be a typical missionary talk around exactly what they're doing across this, uh, over, the, over the seas, but there will be an intricate and a really challenging part of this for us as individuals. I would want to say to you tonight at the outset of what we do, however desperate or destitute you think your life is, how useless you think that you may be for anything in what God wants to do in you and through you and how poverty stricken you may think you are or God can use other people but he can't use me. I think tonight when you hear what we are gonna talk about you will be greatly encouraged that God can use even you and me. I think that very often we are so quick to rule ourselves out really for the purposes of God. Yeah, we can do some things but great things, no, I'm not sure about that. Tonight. I think that we want to challenge that in a very exciting way, make you think again. Davey and Esther, please come and join me and let's just welcome them, please. I see you're confusing me. You sat the other way around this morning.
2: Just like to mix it up a bit. It's
1: true. I prefer to look at Esther than you. Then.
2: We can, we can swap.
1: <laughs> <laughs> we go back many years, so you just need to understand that we've known each other for many years, and uh, a really good friendship. Guys, welcome. Good to have you with us. Thank you for what you shared this morning and on Friday, and we're looking forward to, to this evening. So, you're in Cambodia, so let's just give ourselves a little bit of context. Let's find out where Cambodia is on the map. I'm sure everybody knows where it is. Everybody knows exactly where to find it, but this is where Cambodia is, surrounded by Thailand, sur- surrounded by Vietnam. And then there's down here is Malaysia, Singapore, Indonesia. And that's where it's, it's in that Asian sort of part of the world. And uh, it's a very beautiful country, but it's been through a very, very difficult time. We're just going to run through some interesting facts. Hopefully, they're going to be interesting, but they will give you a little bit of an idea for Cambodia and what shaped it historically. Some of, the, some of the facts about it. Between 1975 and 1979, the Khmer Rouge guerrillas and their brutal form of radical communism caused over two million deaths of their own people. It was brutal. Someone, some of you may be familiar with the phrase, the killing fields. Well, that was Cambodia. And this is not anecdotal, this was the reality that they decided not to use bullets because bullets were too expensive to use to kill people so they did it by battering people to death. It was an incredibly brutal time. Only about 45, 50 years ago in Cambodia. The country has over 40,000 amputees. One out of every 290 Cambodians has lost a limb. It is the most land country in the world today. And if you go there, you still have to be incredibly careful when you go out into the rural areas. That's the living conditions for today. Three, 32.4% of children under five are stunted due to malnutrition. I think that speaks for itself, really. couple of other things, has a young population, most of its population is under 20, that's because most of the people of my generation and the next generation were killed during the Khmer Rouge during the 70s, 1.3 million mopeds in Cambodia, God bless them for a population of over 1.5 and that's the official religion. KFC is losing money in Cambodia, making it the only in the country in the world where they're not profitable. Isn't that worthless information? <laughs> Absolutely worthless information. But they don't even have a McDonald's. How do you manage? Wonderful.
2: We've, we've got we've got Carl's Jr. We're okay.
1: <laughs> you don't get bodies like us, like we have, by well, avoiding McDonald's.
2: I'm just going to say, if we had had McDonald's, I wouldn't be able to stay in such an athletic shape. So. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Our subject tonight is delusion. <laughs> Can somebody just give me a tissue? I forgot to bring a tissue, and it's really warm at the front here. Um, so, guys, how long have you been in Cambodia?
2: We've been in Cambodia for just almost eight years.
1: And obviously, you're from Northern Ireland.
2: We are, yeah.
1: Tell us a bit about yourselves. You
0: should be on. I don't, oh, yeah, I am now. Um, yes, we've been in Cambodia eight years. Um, this July will be married 25 years. So that's a bit of an achievement. Um,
1: <laughs> married 25 years and you've got 50 next year, that's right, isn't it? 50 yeah. next year. Yeah. We
0: have um, two little doggies, Meg and Ruby, um, back in Cambodia there at the... Uh, spa there at the um, kennels and swimming and having a good holiday.
1: Good stuff. So tell me, you're in Cambodia. Tell me, what's the thing you like the most about it, and what's the thing you dislike the most about it?
2: Um, well, the thing the thing we, we said this morning, we, we we really love the people. The people are they're they're really amazing. They're just so nice. They're so they're so friendly. Um, the community. Um, the, the, the whole community factor that they, they, they spend so much time together eating, um, talking, sharing life together, and, and it's a community-based that we, a community based living that we're not used to coming from the UK. Um, and every time we go back to the UK, we, we are so sad because everybody's so busy and so rushed and so concerned about themselves that they, they, they don't seem to have the time for other people and, and, and for that community life that um, is, is so obvious in Cambodia. The, yeah.
0: while, while we've been here, we've been enjoying your beautiful country and the fresh air and going for walks and seeing the water and the mountains and the greenery. Um, so we miss that because we're in the city. It's really noisy and dusty and polluted and um, we can get you know, quite congested and things like that. So here's good for our health.
1: <laughs> good, so it's the people that you like and it's the pollution that you don't. Yes. So it's good. Now, you guys, the work that you do there, you do an incredible amount of work, you'll be very modest about it, but some of the work that you're involved with, you along with uh, a group of Cambodian uh, church leaders, you run a church in the city of Non Pen, a good local church. Mm-hmm. You are heavily involved in church planting, uh, we'll come to that in a moment. You have established and run a project called Be Free to help rehabilitate girls that have been rescued out of the, the sex trade and the trafficking uh, or have been forced to work in, in bars for, for sex. You, it's called Be Free. And you also run an early learning center. So the time is pretty packed out. Tell us a little bit about those four areas, what they do, to give us an, an idea of what, what you're doing there.
2: Um, so, well, the church, um, as we said this morning, it's central to everything we do, and, and, and everything comes out of the church. So, mm-hmm. so um, we have a church leadership with Pastor Chimnap. He's the senior leader, the national leader of Cambodia now. He's Esther, my boss, and we love the fact that we've got a boss now, that somebody in Cambodia um, is running everything. Um, the church in the city, uh, we have about seventy or eighty people coming most weeks, and and that's not bad for a Cambodian church in Asia. Big churches don't really exist. There's there's one big big church in in Phnom Penh, but other than that, churches don't get to the size even that we're at. Um, but we're a church planting church, and we have we have trained up a lot of um, leaders within our church that go out to plant churches. So at the minute, well. By the middle of this year, we'll have, um, I think it's 13 church plants. And a a church plant is a group of people meeting under um, a a house. They're all built in stilts. And under these houses, they meet, there's maybe 10 to 15 people. It's a bit like a cell group or a a home church or, 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 you know, and and they, they do church the way that Cambodians would do church, not the way that Westerners would do church. And it's really, really exciting. I love going to be part of the the, the church plants. So, so it's very, very much a big part of what we do. And we have a vision that um, by 2022, that we'll actually have planted 125 house churches. So,
1: and you've made a good start at that. Yeah,
2: we're, we're we're on track with that. Um, with the way that we do the multiplication and everything.
1: So obviously within Cambodia, although it's hugely Buddhist, there's a hunger for something spiritual for, for, for more than they get in Buddhism? Can you define that at all?
2: Well, there's, there's so many people that would say they're Buddhist, but actually they're not practicing Buddhist in any shape or form. Um, a lot of the young people don't really know what they are. There's a real, there's a real openness at the minute to the gospel. To to get, There's opportunities to to, to really speak into people's lives and situations, mainly because of what we've seen earlier on now that, that what you were saying about um, the past, because the, 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 it has affected so much um, of the the population that are still alive. You know, there's so many of them have experienced it either first hand, second hand, even third hand of generations of their families being wiped out, and for a long time they all were thinking that it was bad karma, that they had done something, or that they'd all done something really bad for this to happen to their families. Um, But as the the most recent generation has come through, they're further away from that thinking, and they're more open to to change. And even without going into politics in the country, but even with the politics, they're looking for change. And there's a lot of stuff happening in the country which is good, positive stuff. And one of the things is, is that the, they're, they're, there's nothing in the Buddhist religion for them. No. And there's nothing, there's nothing to offer them. And um, a lot of them are, are searching, really searching for something that, that's missing in their lives which okay. of course we know
1: is Jesus. So it's an incredible opportunity. Talk to us about Be Free, what's Be Free?
0: So, Be Free is a training program, and we started five years ago, and we partner with organizations who have rescued girls from exploitation, from trafficking, um, from having to work in these bars and and have sex with foreigners. And we, we partner with them, they've been rescued. The girls have received some initial trauma counseling. They've maybe lived in a safe house for a while. And then they come to us, and for 12 months, We offer them life skills. We teach them handicrafts. We have devotions in the morning and Bible study. Um, We introduce them to our church family and encourage them to be part of the church. And we just really love them and um, help them with some education. And after 12 months, we have a graduation ceremony, and then we help them find a full-time job. I said to somebody earlier that no matter what we do you know we can help them a lot but until they have that encounter with Jesus and through that they're really transformed and they can forgive what's happened in their past mm-hmm. and they then can you know be an example to others and help others we have whenever new girls join our program we bring back um, the graduates and they talk and say look you know, stay with the program, because sometimes they'll leave, sometimes their, their mother or their boyfriend won't, th- won't want them to be with us, because they can earn more money, you know, outside. Um, so they really encourage them to stay. And we then have some of our girls that are working in our early learning center. One of our girls is part of our church planting team and going into the province and telling children and adults about Jesus. Some of them are working in salons and restaurants and they're able to provide for their children. And it's
1: qualify what I'm saying here, in some ways, the rescuing of girls is not necessarily the hardest thing to do. It's the rehabilitation, it's, it's retraining them, reprogramming them, that they are worth something, that they're not just an object. And, and it's the rehabilitation is actually far harder than the actual rescue, and that the, takes the hard work. Is that fair to say?
0: It, it is, right. And when they first come to us, they're scared. They're intimidated because of what we might think of them. Um, and they... You know, it's, it's a totally new experience for them. And, you know, they're maybe away from some of their friends, so it's a new place. So it it, it is it is hard. And um, But we find... Yeah, after about, depends, every girl is different, and every girl has had different circumstances that have come through, uh, but usually it takes about nine months for them really to trust us and to know that we have their best interest at heart.
1: A lot of those girls will have been sold by their family, so they mm. don't even have family to go to help yeah. them because the yeah. family will want them to go back and get yeah. more, earn some more money. Yes.
2: Can, I, can I just say that um, Esther noticed something there's a lot of big organizations. There's, what happens is a lot of these girls are rescued um, from really horrendous situations where they've been forced to do something, and, and they usually have been held captive as they're part of that. Um, and then what happens is, is these organizations, who are good organizations, and we, we understand and believe that they try to do the best. But what they do is, is they rescue the girls, and then they take them, and they keep them for two three four years in their care and basically what they're doing is they're institutionalizing them and as they institutionalize them the girls are then um they're they're being held captive in a different way and in their hearts and minds as they're being rescued and 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 even as they go through their their, their trauma um, counseling and different things they're still feeling trapped mm-hmm. and controlled so then what was happening was is they were then going from that situation into work. And as that was happening, they were just all then just dropping away, leaving leaving the organization, just happy to get freedom. And they were, they were leaving. And a lot of them were going back into the work that they were in originally because it's all they knew. Yeah. And Esther's seen this and she, she really wanted to try to make a difference. So, so she had felt that they needed a year between being trusted to go out and be part of society again they needed a year to come and be in a safe place, be taught how to turn up to work in time, be taught how to manage their money, be taught all these different things but at the same time it gives us 12 months to show them Jesus at a different level
1: I've heard you telling stories that you teach them them basic hygiene the whole thing even through personal hygiene uh,
0: we have a a nurse and she comes in once a week and teaches them health and hygiene um, child care, a lot of them are children and they're only, you know some of them are only 16, 17 and they don't they don't have a mum to teach them how to look after a baby so um, and this nurse comes in and, and teaches about exercise and um, so that's been really important, they really love that mm.
2: and there, there's mm. about 30 girls, 30 to 30, maybe 32 girls have gone through the programme so far and only 3 of them have not, you know had a changed life at the end of it and mm. um, we baptized pro i think it's around about 20 girls we've baptized and our worship team is just full of oh, be free girls, girls. It's, it's unbelievable and our best worship leader and as esther says she's now a church planter and she just if if we we can't tell her story because it's so graphic and yeah. so horrendous but um For her to be now standing at the front of church leading worship to the level that she leads worship, and also day in day out going out and telling people about the love of Jesus—it just—it just just blows your mind.
1: And the stories that we hear about what happens to these girls are true and a hundred times worse in reality. Guys are doing an incredible job. I'm going to push pause there, and we're going to come back, hopefully towards the end, to revisit that. Um, as I said, you guys are doing an amazing work. However, who you are today, as a, as a couple, is only part of your story. And you have been shaped by a, a series of events that one of these three events would be life-changing and life-challenging. But who you are today has come out of three incredible events that happened to you that prepared you for where you are. So, so. Over a number of years, you have gone through bowel cancer. You were addicted completely to gambling. We'll come into that that in a moment. And you were told that you couldn't have children and you haven't been able to have children. Now, one of those three things for uh, a young couple would be pretty traumatic to go through. But to go through the three of those things and come out the other side, still be sane, and still be incredibly used of God like you are is amazing. So I just wanna unpack that a little bit because, as I said, part of who you are is because God has shaped you through these events. We can look back and say that God has shaped It as hell going through it. So talk about your cancer.
0: So when I was 23, 24, and we had been almost married one year um, and I, the, 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 I discovered or I was told that I had um, the start of bile cancer. So my, my grandmother had died whenever my mum was 16 and then they didn't know what it was. Um, but when my mum, whenever I was then 15, my mum was discovered to have bile cancer and it's really hereditary in my mum's side of the family. So at that time, all my siblings and I were tested, Um, but because then we weren't adults, we, um, it was up to us whenever we did become adults to regularly go for checkups, but because the tests were so invasive, none of us uh, were tested. Um, So when David and I got married, um, his dad's a financial advisor and wanted us to do everything right and look after ourselves, so told us that we had to get some health insurance So for that, David then joined my doctor's practice, and through a conversation with my doctor, it was arranged for me to have a routine um, colonoscopy test. Um, It wasn't pleasant, and when we went back to meet the consultant for the results, um, he had a diagram of my bowel, and it was just all pen marks where all these polyps were. Um, I mean, I had no symptoms at all. Um, I was in totally good health. And, um, but he said, look, you're only married. We will bring you back in again. We'll do the procedure again. We'll use laser surgery, remove the large polyps, give you medication to stunt the growth of the others, and then have a family, and then we'll deal with it down the line. Um, but when I went in and they did this test again, And then they sent off the large polyps for biopsies. They had already turned cancerous. So we were then brought back in and said, okay, things have to change. You're going to have to have um, pioneer surgery. And it was removing my large bowel and making a man-made pouch inside. I had an ileostomy bag for six months. And then they would reverse the procedure. So it all it all came as a shock and every time I got bad news I was always by myself and you know at 24 and just married it was it was a really difficult journey um neither of us were Christians at this point we had both been brought up in Christian families but whenever we reached teenage years we we backslid so any young people here please stay in the church stay close to God don't follow our example um but any time I went down for surgery, I just prayed, Lord, please help me. Please be with me. Or I'd say the Lord's Prayer. And I knew that there were a lot of people praying for me. Um, but I still wasn't a Christian. I still hadn't given my life back to God. And um, so it was very traumatic. And all the surgeries, I ended up having four surgeries in hospital for nine and a half weeks. It was the best summer Northern Ireland ever had. Um, and... It was really tough time, but God was in it all. And the people that were praying for me, um, one night a friend of my dad who was a minister visited me and said, Esther, you know, you've been through so much, you've had all these surgeries, and if something went wrong, were you prepared to meet your maker? And I said, No, but I want to be. So that night I prayed and gave my life to the Lord and I've heard lots of people when I was younger tell their testimony and say about this burden rolling off, well it honestly happened with me and I just had such a good night's sleep Um, David then visited me in the hospital the next morning and I told him what happened and he went ballistic I don't know if that word's in New Zealand, he was so angry, Uh, what have you done you've ruined our life and you know we can't have parties anymore not, not
2: that we had my, not big parties not my, not my finest
0: moment um what have you done you've ruined our life and he went off he left the hospital and i'm sitting
1: there crying so you so go on
2: so i was just going to say so i went home to my mom and dad's house and they were making lunch and they knew already that esther became became a christian and they were so happy so it was like there was it was like we're selling elephants at the back and it was like the elephant in the room Um, i came in and i sat down at the table and they put lunch down and they were waiting for me to say something and i didn't and then they said well what did you think of esther's news and being the real typical hypocrite that i was i said it's fantastic And I I just left Esther crying her eyes out um, in hospital and being so harsh with her. Um, But there was reasons for that.
1: So you're in hospital, you're having your four operations, you come to to God, this guy is not happy with you. But the reason that he's not happy with you, because unbeknown to you, one year into your marriage, David, you're an absolute gambling addict. Yeah. And we'll talk a little bit about that, but you've got huge debts and your life's in a mess and you have no idea about this. So let's just unpack a little bit about your addiction.
2: So um, so when I was 17, uh, a friend of mine asked me to, to do a bet on a horse and I'd never done a bet in my life. I didn't even know what he was talking about. And he, he said to me about it and I said, okay, he says, give me two pounds and I'll give you nine pounds back. Now, anybody says that to you, you're automatically going to give them two pounds because um, that's sort of, you know, anybody wants to have more money like that. So, so I said, yeah, 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 okay. So he went and he put this bed on in the bookmakers and I went in and I watched. And I watched as this horse jumped around, the, the, over the fences and around the track. And in that moment, I just completely fell in love with this horse. But I also fell in love with gambling. And it's really, it's really strange because you never actually know um, when you start out that you're going to end up gamble or, you know, completely addicted to something. And it just, it just um, spiraled very quickly. It started off with a two pound bet. Then it was a 10 pound bet and then a 20 pound bet. I remember my first 50 pound bet went to 500 pounds. I remember going to a horse track in Nice in in Ireland and first race I put 500 pounds on the a horse to win the first race and it fell at the first fence and I didn't even I didn't even get annoyed I just went straight over to look at what was running in the next race and it had got to the stage where it was nothing to do with how much I was betting how much I was winning, how much I was losing. It was just all to do with the adrenaline part of it. And that's what happens with, with, with that type of addiction. You just, it just consumes you. And I, I would say, look, this morning we talked about, I talked a lot about addiction, but I just want to say to people, look, if there's people in your family that are addicted to something, especially if it's, if it's alcohol or gambling or something like that, and you're really struggling with it, I want, to, I want to say to you, look, I couldn't control it. I couldn't control it. It con- tr- completely controlled me. It turned me into a liar. It turned me into a thief. It turned me into so many different things. And I didn't want to be that person. And I did. I really didn't. I tried so much to not be that person. But it completely takes over your life. And I'm not sticking up for the people that have the addictions. I'm just saying to you, the person is still the same person that they were before they were addicted, but they're just consumed by something that they cannot control. Their only answer is Jesus. It's the only thing that can, that can ever help them to properly um, escape.
1: We'll come back to an incident. That was quite profound when you told me about it, but there's there a survey done recently in North American churches, and they say that they believe that somewhere between 45 to 50% of the church of, of Christians in the North America are on some degree of addiction, whether it be to Facebook, social media, to um, alcohol, porn, whatever. It's a huge problem in North America, and usually what happens in North America comes over this way, so it's, 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 a, it's a huge, huge problem. You, you tell, um, it's, a, it's a sad story, but it's a very funny and interesting story about one night when all your dreams were about to uh, come true and God absolutely did a dirty on you.
2: Yeah. So we were, so we're, whenever Esther got saved, I knew, I knew that I was going to get saved. I knew it was going to happen because I'd, I'd known for a while that the only, the only answer was, was God and was Jesus. And and. You know, I'd been brought up to, to know that, but I had fought against it, and I, and, I, and I convinced myself that I needed to fix myself before I came to Jesus, and that was never going to work, and it was never going to happen, um, but in this situation, we were 58,000, about 58,000 New Zealand dollars in debt. We were about to lose our house. Um, Esther didn't know any of this, um, so Whenever she got saved, it was like, I know I'm gonna to have to tell you soon. And I knew that I needed to try to fix this because, again, I felt I needed to fix it. So I went to, um, sat down, and I strategically picked, um, it was an absolute ton of things. Um, tennis matches, individual people to beat individual people at tennis, the same with golf, horse races, Football matches are right across the board, and I had it. It was it was a fin, it was a fantastic bet it, right across to the very last match. And Manchester United, who were the champions of England and were the this top team, were playing this really, really, really low down team called York City. And well,
1: so, just, just to give you context, we were trying to work it out in the context of Man United playing York City. It's the same as the All Blacks playing someone like Hamilton Marist. Okay. It's like that. So, that's, that's the, that's the so, divide.
2: And it's at Manchester United's brilliant stadium. And there's not a chance, not a chance that York City will, the, even if the 22 players instead of 11, that they would, that they would even draw this match And I was waiting on this for around about 30,000 New Zealand dollars. And it was like, it was in the bag, it was happening. And I was so thankful that I had, I was able to reduce this massively. And I sat down on our kitchen, it was like a kitchen with a dining area. And I was sitting on the ground, leaning against the radiator. As usual in Northern Ireland, it was freezing. So I was sitting, leaning against the radiator, listening to this match as York City scored um, to go one nil up. And I thought, well, it's okay, because Manchester United will still win five or six. And then they went 2 nil up. And then they went 3 nil up. And at this stage, I just sat there. And actually, it was really strange. I didn't say this this morning, but it's the truth. I had my Bible sitting, bes- or a Bible sitting beside me. And I was actually sitting reading parts of the Bible while this was going on. And I was just like, okay, God, I know that I know now that I can't do this. I need to come to you. I need to give it to you. I need to give my life to you. And um, I did that the following day.
1: We went online. We went and found one of the headlines from the from the 21st of September, 1975. Uh, 1995. Old Trafford left standards York teach United a lesson. It was. I actually do remember it, although we hadn't met then. I do remember it. The shot was incredible.
2: So, I mean... I tell that story many times, and there's a lot of people doubt me that it even happened, but that is proof that it did happen. Um, and the next day, I had to uh, tell Esther after. So I came home from work. Esther was sitting there. I said, Darling, I want to I wanna give my life to Jesus, and I wanted to wait so that we could pray together, that you could be part of it. And she was so happy. And I knew it was the right thing, and I was so happy too. Um, but as soon as we'd finished, I had to sit her down and say to her, look, I have something to tell you. And I told her that we were so much in debt. And I said to her, look, I understand. If you want to want me to leave, if you want to kick me out, if you want to, you know, I understand. You have absolutely no reason to stick with me. Um, but she did. And
1: mm, just jumping in there. So... And before you went to the mission field, you paid off your debts. We did. It took. All it
2: took. A, it took a lot of hard work. Um, we actually. It, it, I'll be really quick with this, but um, we. We literally. I told Esther. We rang my mom and dad. They came over. We told them about the debts, but we didn't tell them about. We told them about everything, but I'd forgot about the telephone bill. And we had this telephone bill, and it was um, two. I think two. £216.31 pence, or something like this. And this telephone bill um, was really important to us because um, Esther, because she'd been so sick and I was working night shift and in those days we didn't all have mobiles, she needed to be able to ring if she was sick. But the, the telephone bill was going to be cut off at the end of the week. And I didn't know how we were going to pay this because we just didn't have any money. And my uncle rang me the day after got saved and um he says to me uh, your dad told me this morning that you got saved now my dad didn't know anything about the telephone bill and he said um he says last night he said um i woke up in the middle of the night and god told me that i need to give you 216 pounds and 31 pence and he says i don't know why it's such a specific number but he told me I need to get it to you and I need to get it to you urgently. And I'd heard about all these things happening before because we'd been brought up in church. So we had heard about all these things about people turning up out of the blue and giving people money when they needed it and they didn't know they needed it and all this and how amazing these things were. And I would say, oh, that's really nice, but it would never happen to us. Well, it just, one thing after the other happened and God was all over it. And everything that I'd tried to fix for so long and had actually held me back from coming to God, he was ready to he he was well ready he knew the minute we were born that we were going to need this help at this point of time and and you know I would just encourage anybody that 's sitting here tonight that 's fighting becoming a christian and thinking you 're not worthy or you 're not capable, or if you did become a christian um you 'd be a really bad Christian well, actually, do you know what um all God asks is for you to come and he'll, he'll fix you. He, he may fix you straight away and he may not. It may take a bit of time but he will fix you.
1: Moving on to the whole the time we got left. The whole era of not being able to have children. How do you process that? Tell us very briefly how it came about. And...
0: Well, we always thought um, it was because of my surgery and we then, after a few years, asked the consultant, you know, is everything okay? And he said, absolutely, go ahead and try to have a family. Um, but again, time went on and nothing was happening. Mm-hmm. so after having a um, series of tests, um, we then went, we then were offered the chance to have um, a form of IVF XC treatment and we went to the hospital for our appointment to start this and everybody in the church was so excited. They'd been praying for us for years and everybody kept saying, oh, you'll be amazing parents because we helped with all the children and youth activities. We loved our nieces and nephews and we were so excited about finally, you know, being able to start some form of treatment to have a child. Um, but when we went for our appointment... It was at a particular time and other couples were being called before us and we were waiting and waiting and we were the last couple then to be taken in to see the fertility, infertility ex, uh, consultant um, to start this treatment and he said, look, I'm looking at all the tests that you've had done in other hospitals and the paperwork and there's actually been some mistakes made and you've been told, you know, you've been given the wrong results and um, so I have to tell you that Mrs. Allen you can have children but not with Mr. Allen just like that and we were like what (laughs) and he said um, so the only option would be donor sperm and we said no we're Christians and you know we've decided not to go down that route and he said well then I suggest you get a puppy or a hobby and um, do that and that's, um, that's all I can say. And he left the room. And David and I were just sitting there stunned. And we then left the hospital. But we had to walk through where the maternity section was. And where they're selling all the you know baby balloons and everything. Um, so we went straight to our pastor's house. Because uh, our, our family, well, my family were far away, and our pastor and his wife were like parents to us as well. And we just went there and sat and cried, and yeah, it was it was difficult.
2: It, it, it was hard. And for me, um, I was still coming to terms about what I had robbed Esther of, because for years we hadn't had holidays. We, you know, we were both in good enough jobs. We, we couldn't have holidays. We couldn't have this. We couldn't have that, because of my gambling days and uh, and I felt really guilty about this for a long time. Esther never ever made ever would have said anything to me like this is all your fault or we could have had a holiday because you know she was never like that but then just to, to top that all off the one thing that she desperately wanted that we both wanted was a child and I couldn't give her that and that was really hard for me to, to I, I mean I I really, I, I ended up in depression for a while. I was, um, I was on medicine and, and everything to try to help me with that. And it was, it, I really, really struggled to come to terms with the fact that I couldn't give Esther a child after everything else that had done.
1: Do either of you feel as if God has let you down? No,
0: no, we um, we both. We handle it in different ways, and um, so for both of us, I mean, we both, and I was working in the church, so that was, um, it was really hard because we have a big church like yourselves, and there's so many babies being born, and it was, I said this morning that I struggled, I couldn't go to Mother's Day services, um, I just I just couldn't, couldn't be there sitting in the seat whenever mothers were all asked to be prayed for I just really struggled with that and um, David coped with it in his way but it was trying it was for both of us we did struggle for a while communicating with each other and you know I almost wanted it to be my problem to be my fault because you know I feel for a man not to be able to do that it was really hard for me watching David and he's a very sensitive um, guy and I could see how much he was hurting for me. Um, but we never, we never blame God. We just, at times we were like, why God, why? But
2: We were angry we, at times with God, but I was more angry yeah. with God than Esther.
0: And one day I just, with David, we were still going to church, but David was going to church, but just struggling. And so one day I said to Pastor David, our pastor, I said, David, whenever David comes to pick me up, you know, can you just call him in and have a little chat? Because he's struggling, and yeah he that really turned it around yeah for
2: you. He, ju- he didn't judge me or anything like that he just he, he he basically just was there for me, and he just says, "Look, get yourself back in the game you know you, you know stop stop blaming god it's you know it's it's not god's fault and and shortly after this, both of us actually it was at the same time i don't know i can't remember the exact moment, but I knew it was together we both realized that just that God knows best and that, you know, no matter what, there had to be a reason for this. And that reason was bigger than us. And that reason was going to be something that was going to be that God would use for good. And whenever I see Esther um, with these girls that she's working with uh, day in, day out, these girls that have been treated so horribly by their parents, by their mothers. Um, some of them don't have mothers, um, and, and they don't have any relationship with, with the mother if she is still alive. And I watch Esther helping them find themselves to find Jesus and be restored, and each and every one of them just loves her in a way like, she was their mother, and she never asks them, you know, call me mother or I'm your mother. But many of them, many of them, will um, still come to her, no matter what's going on in their lives, because they look on her at, like their mother. And every single one of those girls would have been the age of our girls if we had had girls. And God, you know, God knew that, God knew that, and He had a plan for our lives. And the only thing, look. You're 100% right. If God can use Esther and me, he can use absolutely anybody. Now, that's a bit harsh because Esther has always been special. But for me, I... I no, but it's the truth. It's the truth. I was I was the one that had all the issues and all the, the, the problems with the gambling and everything. But God fixed that. And when God came into the situation, that all changed. Um. And the only thing that Esther and I have brought to the table was obedience. And we trusted God that he could use two people like us to to go and be part of something which has turned out to be really good. But again, it's because God has enabled us to do it and it's God who has, has made it happen.
0: Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, Check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.